Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's May 20th, 1999. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Motorcycling Daredevil Evil Knievel not only had one of the hardest names to spell of all time, it's E-V-E-L, not Evil, and then K-N-I, like the beginning of Knife, and then just the first name again, but he also (laughs) had frankly unachievable ambitions, one of which was jumping the Grand Canyon, a plan he hatched as far back as 1968, but was never actually attempted by any rider until his son, Robbie Knievel, gave it a go on live TV, on this day in 1999. And as soon as he hit the ground, fireworks erupted and the crowd of about 500 people who had assembled to watch this thing cheered. I watched a bit of it on YouTube to see what the whole business was like. It's a very long video, isn't it? It's an enormously long video. It's like 40 minutes long and you think, actually, as that aired on American TV with American ad breaks, you must be looking at like an hour and a half special to see essentially all you want to see is five seconds. It did remind me a bit of the jump from space by Felix Baumgartner and that feeling of apprehension and like, am I watching a snuff film here? Is he about to plunge to his death? Because if he'd got it wrong, he was going to plunge 600 metres down to the canyon floor. It's hard to say this because it sounds like I'm saying I think I could jump the Grand Canyon at its widest point. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think it is worth bearing in mind that it was a very particular narrow portion of the Grand Canyon, still technically part of the Grand Canyon but probably not the part you're imagining. And that was partly because it was much narrower, 69 metres. Still, you know, still quite a large gap to jump on a motorbike. Still quite a lot of canyon to get your bike over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also the reason that Evil Knievel never got the chance to jump the Grand Canyon is because most of it is owned by the federal government and they wouldn't give their permission. And this particular sliver was owned by the Hualapai Indian Nation and they did give him permission. So the two factors kind of converged to make this the only possible way that he could perform that stunt. Yeah, on the basis that it would attract tourists. So there's this kind of Mm. hilarious bit of this Fox Sports broadcast as well, where suddenly these very kind of all-American Star Spangled Banner type presenters are talking about the miraculous opportunities offered by going to visit the Wallapai Indian Reservation and see the incredible geographic (laughs) things, go whitewater rafting as a promotional tool. What happens once Robbie Knievel hits the off-ramp and then falls incredibly hard and there's this cloud of dust and yes everyone cheers because he is safely over the canyon but he crashes into this sort of makeshift it looks like a pile of hay bales or something and then he's examined by paramedics and they apply a neck brace and then fly him in a helicopter to a hospital for further examination he did manage to say at some point i'm wiped out in the head a little so people knew that he was sort of okay but 
<laughs> I think there must have been some apprehension that, like, yes, he made it, but in the same way that Evil Can Evil, often his stunts went awry, and I think that that was part of the appeal. I think people came to see this sort of on the edge, will it, won't it, how bad will the accident be, as well as the feat itself. Yeah, because it's got to be said that although Robbie also spent his career as a stunt biker and he replicated many of the stunts that his father, Evil Knievel, failed to do, his Wikipedia page contains noticeably fewer broken bones. He was mm. actually quite good at it. Some people have said it's because he rode a different kind of bike. He rode a motocross bike rather than a flat racing motorbike, which is what his father used. But partly it kind of just seems like he was maybe a bit better at it. Well, he grew up seeing it as a career, didn't he? Whereas Evil Knievel grew up seeing it as a death wish. His whole thing was, he's actually mad. He's going to put a rocket on the bottom of, as you say, a street bike, rather than a bike designed for flying through the air. It's a bit like yesterday when we were talking about the Rubik's Cubes that are designed for competition, right? They're easier to move because you need to be quicker on them. That's what's used now in these bike stunts. They're bikes that are designed for jumping over double-decker buses. Whereas Evil Knievel in the 60s and 70s, they were called death-defying stunts because he literally seemed to defy death when surely he should have died. On one occasion at Caesar's Palace, ending up essentially in a coma for 30 days, trying to jump the water fountains there, a feat that Robbie Knievel then did achieve later. And it's not so surprising when you look into the history of that Caesar's Palace jump a little that, first of all, he was doing everything on a shoestring and he wasn't very well trained and he was coming up with his stunts on the fly. So he did actually manage to talk Caesar's Palace into taking him by inventing this whole fake corporation and and talking to the casino owners and then posing as multiple people from his own company to like talk to different folks in charge to get them to say yes. But casino owners are the most legitimate of business people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, seems like you wouldn't be able to pull the wool over their eyes in the aid of a gaudy spectacle. <laughs> but then on the morning of the jump, he actually stopped by the casino, placed his last hundred dollars on the blackjack table, lost, and then stopped by the bar where he had a shot of wild turkey and then headed outside to do the jump. And then guess what? The jump didn't go very well. Yeah, I mean, that is an understatement. I mean, I think that... <laughs> failed bet is probably emblematic of the whole occasion because not only did he not clear the fountains he suffered a crushed pelvis and femur fractures to his hip wrist and both of his ankles as well as a concussion however it did seem to win him a bit of national recognition because it was only a few months after this that he was invited on the joe bishop show which was what made him a household name so i guess from his perspective it was probably worth it and also he'd tried to sell the rights to ABC's Wide World of Sports beforehand and they passed. But then afterwards they came back to him and they said, by the way, did you film that thing that happened to you and can we buy it? And they ended up paying much, much more than had they filmed the thing live in the first place. Yeah, and a generation who grew up in the 70s absolutely idolised Evil Knievel. His toy bike replicating his stunts was a massive bestseller and people really believed that he was almost like the last of an all-American breed of superhero, you know, real-life daring do, no health and safety before everything went nuts. <laughs> These are the people that love Evil Knievel and I feel like this event in 1999 was sort of the last time that there was a really pure expression of that kind of stunt where the joy in watching it partly is a bloodthirst to see what might happen in what they insist on calling the worst case scenario but they actually show you in reconstructions so i watched the whole telecast arian and they show you the sequence twice where they throw a dummy down the grand canyon on a <laughs> no. motorbike and the reporter in a really po-faced way afterwards is like 
even though that's a simulation, it's very difficult to watch. And it's like, well, you've shown it twice. You've shown yeah. it twice. It's not that the hard. audience are there to see, potentially, this man fall 2,000 feet to certain death whilst his daughters look on, one of whom who's just sung the national anthem excruciatingly. Well, the other advantage that Robbie had as well was that in his first years on the circuit, he actually had his father as a mentor because by this time, Evil Knievel had retired. And there were kind of two things that pushed him to quit. One was in 1977, there was an accident where he crashed into a cameraman. Apparently, that was the only thing that ever bothered him in his life. You know, he broke all the bones in his own body. But this cameraman had his eye injured when Knievel crashed into him. And that made him reconsider everything. He was very distraught. His nerves were really shaken. But then, as he was recovering from this accident, he found out that his former promoter, a guy called Shelley Saltman, had written an unflattering book about him. So Knievel, with his arms still in casts, flew out to confront him in California with some associates. And while they held him down, Knievel, again, arms and cars, beat him with an aluminium baseball bat. Whoa. Obviously, this became a legal issue. And the funny thing about <laughs> it is, the, the book that had started it all, Knievel said the book depicted him as a drug addict, adulterer, anti-Semi and immoral person. However, he would later go on to acknowledge that 85 to 90% of the book was truthful. That does tie into the stuff that Robbie says about his dad as well. You know, he did have the advantage of getting some basic training from him in the ways of stunt jumping. But uh, I found this other quote from him where he said, my dad trained me. It's easy when you make a kid drink wild turkey and beat him with a cane. He taught me how to ride a motorbike. Then I started jumping and he got pissed off. And so I think, you know, he had this tense relationship with his dad where his dad kind of wanted him to go into the family business as it were. But at the same time, when he started jumping, and who knows, he may have been concerned for his kid and didn't want to see him go through the same stuff that he went through himself. But certainly there is at least the possibility that he felt threatened by what his son was going to do. And then, you know, Robbie did set about trying to beat many of the records that his dad had set. Yeah, well, exactly. Is it a tribute to your dad? Like he said, right. didn't he, after his successful Caesars Palace jump, oh, this is for you, dad. But is it really? Right. Like it's kind of rubbing in the fact that his father failed to do this thing that he was then able to do. And I did think... You know, with these shots of his kids waiting for Robbie Knievel to make this jump, you know, clearly quite distraught that they might be about to see their father die being paraded out on live TV. You know, he's sort of forcing another generation into this trauma, really, of having this thing where, yeah, your father's a national hero, but it's because everyone thinks he's doing really stupid things and he might die at any moment. I found an interesting detail about how Evil Knievel chose his name. His name is actually Robert Craig Knievel. Apparently in 1956 he was arrested for, you may uh, be able to guess this, reckless driving. And when he was put in jail that night, he was sharing a cell with a guy called William Knoffel, who had the nickname <laughs> Awful Knoffel. And that <laughs> led Knievel to think up his own name, Evil Knievel. But then he decided that actually he wanted to spell it E-V-E-L, making a bit less diabolical. Yeah, because he was Christian, wasn't he? And like quite into the he God was. stuff. I think calling himself actually evil would have been problematic. Yeah, I mean, but you only have to read the book to find out he wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. I love thy neighbour more than you, you bastard. <laughs> love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.